one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This administration is so good at building mountains out of dust. And so you want as little dust around the process as possible. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. The home of grace-filled political conversations. Welcome back from Thanksgiving break. We hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. We spent a lot of time talking about how to prepare for those tough conversations about politics around the table. And if you had really positive experiences or conversations, please share them with us. We would love to see if all our hard work paid off and you guys talked about impeachment or values or anything else around the holiday table with your loved ones. 
We also want to know what your favorite episode of the year have been. We have narrowed the field with the help of our patrons to five choices. There's going to be a link in the show notes, and you'll also find this on social media for you to go to our Patreon page. You do not have to be a Patreon supporter to be able to vote. This will give us some insight into what kind of programming you really love as we plan 2020 out. And we're also going to do something a little bit special with that favorite episode. So let us know your thoughts. Today, we are going to catch up on the news around the globe and in the United States, as well as sharing what's on our mind outside politics. We will start with the United Nations Conference of Parties on Climate Change. This is the 25th Conference on Climate Change. It's a two-week program in Madrid, and we want to give a mad shout-out to Madrid, who's hosting on a moment's notice after unrest in Chile led them to cancel on hosting. And, you know, we are all kind of stressed when we get a last-minute party. Can you imagine being Madrid and be like, oh, we're going to host nearly 200 countries and 25,000 people for a two-week climate summit with like a moment's notice. So well done, Madrid. The hope is that this summit will bolster the Paris Agreement. I really appreciated the summary from the new scientist that said this is technical stuff, but it's technical stuff that matters a lot. And there's a real focus on the rules on carbon trading. The spotlight during this summit is going to be on China and the EU because the United States has basically dropped out of this conversation altogether. We will have American diplomats there, but Obviously, the United States has backed out of the Paris Agreement, and the Trump administration is not in a position to be a leader on climate change on a global scale. The hope is, after a somewhat disappointing summit in New York, that you can just continue some momentum, getting world leaders together to think about all of this stuff, to think about how the Paris Agreement can be built on to do more, to act more urgently. And I think however you feel about the urgency of climate change, it is a good thing to have world leaders getting together with shared goals in mind. Speaking of shared goals, there is a NATO gathering in London this week as well. We are celebrating 70 years of NATO and the Queen will host a reception at Buckingham Palace. This comes with lots of conversation, lots of criticism of NATO coming from the Trump administration. So I think they're really hoping to have a more upbeat conversation and gathering around NATO this week. NATO allies are planning to focus on the fact that more countries are contributing more in the way of defense spending, that NATO preparedness is up, the ability to meet threats to NATO countries is improving over time. The United States investment in NATO has decreased, which allies are hoping to reframe from being kind of a negative to giving some talking points that the president of the United States can be enthusiastic about. So fingers crossed for a happy, healthy NATO summit in London. And London is dealing with a lot right now. Not only do they are they hosting this reception, but they are still in mourning and dealing with a terrible terror attack there on Friday. Two young people were killed and three were wounded after an attacker wearing a fake bomb vest and carrying knives attacked a group of people gathered for an academic conference on educating those coming out of the criminal justice system. This attacker had been invited to the conference and had been convicted of terrorism offenses in 2012 and had come out of the criminal justice system himself. ISIS has claimed responsibility for this attack, but it's it's sparking some really intense conversations in Britain about criminal justice system, how long people should stay in the criminal justice system and what happens to them afterwards. And I know that's 
incredibly difficult. The timing and location of these attacks is just so difficult, even though there were some really heroic actions taken by bystanders to disarm the attacker and hold him until police arrived. It's been weird to see the word bystander pop up in those stories because just the word itself feels wrong to me when someone Mm. is on London Bridge. And if you've ever been in that part of the world, you know, it's just it is so alive. There are so many people. It's so diverse the the river is just kind of breathtaking. It feels so historic. And so who is a bystander when someone is walking around stabbing people in an environment like that? You know, it, it, it is an attack on everyone. And people really were brave in confronting this person. I hate that this brings up a conversation that leads people to say, well, we aren't being tough enough on crime. You know, this person was released early, was wearing an ankle bracelet. The ISIS declaration of responsibility reads, according to experts, like this person has kind of been perpetually inspired by ISIS online, uh, which is a reminder that as much as we like to talk about having defeated ISIS territorially, there's still a threat there that centers on people's loneliness and people's desire mm. to be part of something larger than themselves. This this attacker was 28 years old. And so there are a lot of problems here to continue to be worked through and just major credit to the British people who really do take these attacks and and see themselves as all part of the effort to keep their country safe. I just have such uh Love and empathy for the British people generally. But I know it's, you know, they're going through so much right now. I feel like with this terror attack, with conversations around NATO, with the election and Brexit coming up on December 12th, I read this really upsetting article in The Washington Post about um, the concerns for all the MPs running in this election. And they're out, you know, doing their traditional approach to British politics, which is retail politics, knocking on doors. But because it's in December and the sun is setting um, early in the evening, it's dark. They're being advised not to go out by themselves because there's such strong emotions around Brexit. There's just such strong emotions and negative perceptions of politicians generally um, that especially women and minority members of parliament are being advised to take their um, safety very seriously. And it just it breaks my heart for them. It really, really does. The British election is coming up on December 12th. Donald Trump cannot seem to stay out of this election. It's very weird to watch him talking about it constantly when we're having a discussion in the United States about foreign interference in our elections. It seems like he would be well advised to just stop. And I'm not sure that it's very helpful to Boris Johnson for him to be blabbering on about it either. Hugh Grant is out pounding the pavement in the United Kingdom talking about how people just need to strategically vote to get the conservatives out of government at this point Hmm. because the stakes are so high. It's really interesting to see his political involvement. He said that he considered running himself and decided that he would not do very well with party control. And so the best thing for him to do is use his voice to try to get other people elected. But we will talk much more about that once it gets closer to time. We wanted to move over to the Middle East. As most of you know by now, President Trump went to Afghanistan over Thanksgiving. It was his first visit As president, he gave a press conference, and instead of using this event as most presidents do, which is to put out a nice positive holiday message, support the troops, 
He decided to say that we are negotiating again with the Taliban and that he feels really good about it, that he feels like a ceasefire is on the table. This after several weeks ago when he basically said, we're not talking about that anymore. Remember, he was going to invite them to Camp David. That fell apart. So it was sort of news to most of the press, I think probably even some of the military, that this is where we are again with negotiations in Afghanistan. And do you want to say I appreciate that he went to Afghanistan to be with the military Mm -hmm. over Thanksgiving? That is not a small thing, and I am grateful for it. He, in this press conference, distinguished the Taliban from al-Qaeda and ISIS in terms of motivation. I'm not sure that that was a fair distinction, and I'm concerned that the sort of puffery that he uses, that's drawing on my law school days, you're allowed to talk in in puffery terms about real estate, you know, this is the best deal ever. And I feel like he brings that to politics, right? And so he talks Mm -hmm. about the Taliban's interest in land and how that's distinct from sort of the chaos and destruction that al-Qaeda and ISIS want to engage in. But let us not forget that the Taliban is interested in more than land as well, and that there is extremist ideology behind the Taliban sometimes. And I just I think this was careless and misguided, and I I wish that he could have done, as you said, Sarah, hopeful message, thank our service members, come home. Yeah, land is power. They're interested in power. Remember when we were all really in on the idea that we were taking out the Taliban because of their treatment of women? I feel like nobody talks about that anymore. Well, there is unrest throughout the Middle East. We talked a few episodes ago about all of the protests happening there in Iran. We are just now learning a couple weeks after the fact because the government blacked out the Internet in the country. The details of how Iran's security forces responded to those protests and the details are horrific. The New York Mm -hmm. Times reports that between 180 and 450 people were killed, 2,000 wounded, 7,000 detained over four days. Goodness. This protest began over a 50 percent increase in gas prices, which resulted at least in part from sanctions from the United States, which have really caused holes in Iran's budget. But we're learning that security forces opened fire on unarmed protesters, that families of the victims have had to sign paperwork promising not to hold funerals or memorial services for their loved ones, Mm. and that those families also had to promise not to give interviews to media in order to get the bodies released to them. Oh, my gosh. terrible. When a government results to an Internet blackout, there's one reason, and it's that they want to keep the breadth and depth of the problem a secret from the rest of the world. And so, you know, the details are so bad, but in a way, not surprising, Iran has never had a particularly nonviolent approach to any sort of protest in its history. And I just think this is so interesting because these protests are happening at the same time of the protest in Iraq, which are really driven in large part by Iran's influence on the Iraqi government. And we had the Iraqi prime minister resign as a result of this protest. And this, too, came from the revelation that Iraqi security forces were too brutal in response to the protests. Mm-hmm. They killed numerous dozens, I saw, protesters over about 24 hours. There is major uncertainty about how a new Iraqi prime minister will be so, will be selected because there isn't a coalition in Iraq's parliament with enough of a majority to do it on its own. So there's a lot of scrambling. People have called it a constitutional black hole. 
And meanwhile, the protests continue on because, as is a theme in Iran, in Mm -hmm. Iraq, in Lebanon, in Hong Kong, people start protesting about one thing, but it becomes about everything. It seems like there is almost like a evolution from the Arab summer. It felt like during the Arab summer that many of the protests were about removing longtime leaders. And it seems like so many of the protests around the world, the protesters are not happy with just removing the leaders. It's like everyone saw that that was not enough, that just getting one person out from the top doesn't change the system. I mean, that's definitely what you hear from the Iraqi protesters. They don't just want the prime minister gone. They want new elections. And what's really interesting is I read on Al Jazeera that many of the protesters don't just want new elections. They want to move from a parliamentary system to a presidential system. They want a popularly elected leader at the very top, which I thought was so interesting. It just seems like worldwide, the frustration with income inequality, with corruption is going much further than it has in the past with the removal of one leader. Well, let's talk about those protests in Hong Kong, because good news, President Trump signed the legislation in support of Hong Mm -hmm. Kong that was Mm -hmm. nearly unanimously passed through the United States Congress. China is predictably not pleased about that. Its approach and response is really interesting, though. It's It says it's sanctioning nonprofit groups like the National Endowment for Democracy, the Human Rights Watch, and Freedom House. We don't really know what that means because these groups are— I don't know what that means. (laughs) These groups are already restricted from operating in mainland China, so it doesn't sound like that request has a lot of teeth now. If they prevented those groups from operating in Hong Kong, it could be a very different story. China is also suspending Hong Kong port visits by U.S. Navy ships, but they had already done that. They refused some of our ships back in August. So a lot of um, puffery, again, my favorite word today, (laughs) from China about this. But it remains to be seen how significant it is. The truth is China is in a tough spot. Its currency value has dropped Mm -hmm. again. It's facing international outcry over the way that it has treated the Uyghurs, the way it's handling Hong Kong. The trade war wears on both parties. It is Mm -hmm. famously said nobody wins a trade war, and that is happening here. And so is not in a position, perhaps, to be as aggressive in its response toward the United States as President Xi would would like. I want to talk a little bit more about China for a second, if we can, Sarah, because I am fascinated by a report in The Wall Street Journal that on Monday, Russia began delivering natural gas to China via an 1,800-mile pipeline that's been in construction since a deal reached in 2014. And what's significant about 2014 is that the deal was reached right after Russia annexed Crimea. And the European Union and the United States hit Russia with sanctions for annexing Crimea. If you've been watching the impeachment hearings, you're hearing a lot about that. And shortly afterward, Russia and China ink a deal for a $400 billion gas supply agreement because Russia needs cash and China needs fuel. China's been trying to move away from oil and it needs lots and lots of natural gas. So it took $55 billion to construct this channel. The Wall Street Journal describes it as a feat of energy infrastructure and political engineering. And 
This is a really big deal because once you construct a pipeline like that, the costs are in and everyone's incentive is to keep that partnership going. Mm. This happens as Russia and China are cooperating militarily more, as trade is increasing between Russia and China. It is happening as every time the United States kind of puts a Chinese business in a box, there is an opening for that Chinese business in Russia. So you've probably heard about Huawei. We've blacklisted that technology company in the United States, but they're building a 5G network in Russia. It also means that China is not going to need American liquefied natural gas. We had been selling more of it in China until the trade wars. Then China slapped it with a 10% tariff that eventually became 25%. And so this really closes a market off for U.S. liquefied natural gas companies and solidifies this partnership between Russia and China to the point where President Xi has called Vladimir Putin his closest and most intimate friend on the global stage. And that is something to watch and to be concerned about. Here's the thing, though. I just finished a book over the holiday called Northland, A 4,000-Mile Journey Along America's Forgotten Border by Porter Fox. I would recommend it. It's really good. It was a book my husband selected for my book club with my two friends from college where this man travels are the U.S.-Canada border. And when he gets to North Dakota, he spends a lot of time talking about the pipeline and the protests surrounding the pipeline there. And pipelines leak. They leak all the time. They leak constantly. Um, and they're they're just environmental impact is is really terrible. And so I will be interested to see um, what happens with a pipeline among two countries that aren't particularly great about protecting communities from environmental impact, concerned with their environmental impact overall, don't have a lot of structure or bureaucracy to deal with the environmental impact. I mean, what happens if there's a massive leak and, you know, China is disproportionately impact or Russia is disproportionately impact? Do we really think the other one's going to step up and help mitigate the damages? So I think that, you know, things drawing them closer together are, you know, there are positive impacts for both countries, but there are also risks. And to that point about the environmental impact, China is part of the group of countries at the U.N. summit right now. China was a a leading part with the United States in getting the Paris Agreement done. And so it it is going to be really interesting to watch. The other aspect of this is that, and this is kind of wonky, but it gives China a seat at the table in the Arctic where the United States and Canada and other countries compete for shipping lanes and resources. And so this partnership with Russia really increases China's presence on the global stage in a number of areas. Beth, who are you complimenting this week? I took a little dig at Senator Rubio last week unnecessarily, and I felt bad about it. Some of you noticed um, Michael <laughs> said, when our listener Michael said that I had major church lady energy as I said that he was uncharacteristically eloquent about something. And so I want to make up for that today <laughs> by complimenting Senator Rubio, who sponsored the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which is being voted on today as the episode releases. It directs agencies like the um, Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the FBI to prepare reports on China's abuses of the Uyghurs. If you have not listened to our episode about the Uyghurs, I urge you to do so. I think this is such an important 
human rights topic for the globe, and I appreciate Senator Rubio's leadership in advancing legislation on it. Well, I'm going to compliment, I mean, I guess just like the whole of Washington, D.C., including both houses of Congress and the president. I think that's right, Um, because they passed a new federal ban on animal cruelty called Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act. It was a bipartisan bill. It passed both houses, and it will outlaw purposeful crushing, burning, drowning, suffocation, impalement, or other violence causing serious bodily injury to animals. Violations can result in a fine or up to seven years imprisonment. So I think that's really positive. I'm proud the president signed it. It was sponsored in the Senate by Senator Blumenthal and Senators Toomey. And so I just think that's really, really great. Obviously, the Humane Society and many other animal rights organizations are delighted with this organization, and I think... You know, preventing cruelty to animals is a an important first step, essential step in how we treat our planet and how we treat each other. So I was happy to see this legislation passed. Next up, we are going to talk about more legislative activity, all the things that are happening domestically as we continue to catch up on the news that transpired over the Thanksgiving holiday. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. 
This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We all went on Thanksgiving break, but you know, Congress really didn't. I feel a little sorry for the members of the Intelligence Committee in particular. So we have a new impeachment timeline. They worked hard over the break, and the Intelligence Committee is expected to circulate its report today, the day this episode is released. And then on Wednesday, the Judiciary Committee, so this is Chairman Nadler's committee, will meet to discuss the constitutional grounds for impeachment. This is kind of a weird situation. They're going to invite law professors to come in and talk about what's impeachable. And I guess this is for the public. I don't, I don't know okay, I've got what the some, point is I'm, here. I'm on the struggle bus with this choice. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt very badly. I don't understand why after weeks of testimony about impeachment, you think it's time. And, and this really tight, arbitrary deadline of Christmas You want to spend time with, like, public service impeachment education. I don't – I'm struggling with this choice. You should just send everyone our five things you need to know about impeachment and be done with it. that's easy. There's no reason to watch hearings with law professors talking about impeachment. But anyway, (laughs) that's the plan. Now, they invited the president or his counsel to participate in these hearings, and the president and his counsel have declined. And let me say – In the spirit of openness and fairness to everyone, I thought that there were some valid arguments in Pat Cipollini's letter back to Chairman Nadler about this hearing. Mm -hmm. Well, it was like an actual legal argument and not something that Donald Trump wrote. Let's let's just say that. I mean, it veered into ridiculous territory at times, but the legal parts of it made a lot of sense. They had a very tight window to respond to this request. The hearing was not scheduled in consultation with them. So just from a pure logistics perspective, the president's going to be in London. Everybody knew that for the NATO meeting that we were just talking about. They had not disclosed who the witnesses would be. Cipollini said that he learned through media reports that it would be an academic seminar and that there was no reason for them to participate in that. And I think all of that's really fair. And I think it is Mm -hmm. so important for the Judiciary Committee to exercise care in the professional courtesy aspects of conducting these hearings, because if they don't, and I know that the re- the reaction to this from a lot of our folks, and I and I feel you, is that, oh, my gosh, why do we have to do everything perfectly when they make everything a disaster? And mm-hmm. that is fair, and I get it. And also, this creates a lot of fodder to make fun of this exercise, to talk about yes. how it's been unfair to the president, how there's no due process. This administration is so good at building mountains out of dust. 
And so you want as little dust around the process as possible. How do you feel about the December 25th deadline? I'm becoming increasingly uncomfortable with it. I really struggle with this. I completely understand why you want to have some momentum. You don't want to lose this story. I'm afraid that the reality is it's already lost that momentum because of Thanksgiving. If it ever had it in the first place, because it's a complex storyline, it's hard for people to understand if they're not inclined to understand it already. And Mm -hmm. so to me, Americans are not going to want to think about impeachment through Hanukkah, Christmas, other holidays that they celebrate at the end of the year, New Year's resolutions. This is supposed to be a time of year when we get to enjoy things. And I just don't think the public is going to be with them on getting this done, except for the people who are already there and have been there for months. And maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe there's no hope of having this be a real consensus process. But I think in that case, in either case, isn't this just making things much harder for Democrats and their staffs than it needs to be? Well, I I feel all that. And I think every single word you just said is true. And then I think, well, maybe the part of the process that we really need America on board with is the Senate trial. We all know how the House vote's going to go. We could stretch this out through the entire month of January. It's not going to change a single Republican vote. So maybe it is right to just to vote on the articles of impeachment in the House and get it to the Senate and treat that trial as the moment Let's get everybody, let's get America in this conversation and decide what they want to do. Because the people who are, you know, opposed to to the impeachment process in the House, nothing's going to change if we stretch it out through January and February, right? I think that's right. I think the real risk in stretching it out through January is on the Democratic primary. Yeah. Because then you don't get any space before people start actually casting votes in February. To Mm -hmm. talk about something else, it is a struggle on your senators who are actually in the process. I mean, that's something that they've had to start addressing questions about on the trail. What happens if you can't campaign in January because you're in a trial? So I understand those concerns, too. But that's going to happen either way, right? If the House gets impeachment done, they're going to be doing it in the Senate. Um, You'd probably rather have the Senate trial in January than Sooner in February. Rather than later. I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. It's very this is a very tough calculation. And let's not forget that there are like so many other things Congress is doing right now. So they are still voting on a fresh crop of new federal judges in the Senate. I avoid any and all articles about how many judicial appointments the Trump administration and Mitch McConnell have pushed through. I just I am 300 percent an ostrich on this. I bury my head in the sand and I try not to think about it. Can I give you one stat on it that might displease you then? The Senate has held 268 votes on nominations and 98 votes on legislation this Congress. Oh, my gosh. You know who needs to put that in an ad? Amy McGrath. It's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what else Congress is working on. We have the Uyghur bill, which is important to me that we talked about in the compliment segment. Mm -hmm. There is also House Resolution 546. This is an interesting one. It formally disapproves of Russia's inclusion in the G7 until it gets out of Crimea. And I think that will be fascinating to watch make its way through the House and the Senate. 
We have prescription drug legislation that's been talked about a lot. Senator Grassley has sponsored a bill that sailed through the committee on a bipartisan basis, but in a really interesting way. Senator Grassley, as you probably know, is a Republican. He got more Democrat support than Republican support from the committee. Some Republicans voted with Grassley and the Democrats, and others did not. And there's a belief that right now he does not have enough Republican votes in the Senate to pass this legislation, despite the fact that Democrats support it and the president supports it. The White House has been trying to get people on board for this legislation. It does some interesting things. It does a lot of things. The big provisions would cap seniors' out-of-pocket costs on drugs in Medicare, and it would penalize companies that levy large price increases. And that is a big sticking point with Republicans who say that's too much market interference, and it is a critical provision to keep Democratic support behind the bill. So Grassley says, even though the president supports this, even though it's got bipartisan support, even though it made it through committee, even though I'm like the chair of a really important Senate committee, it is unlikely that McConnell will bring this to the floor. He has too much power. (laughs) I thought this was great. This is from a Politico article. Legislative activity will only decline further if and when the Senate holds an impeachment trial that will further polarize the Capitol. I've said to people here, if you've been here four years or less, you've never seen the Senate minority whip Dick Durbin. And you would have loved it. It was an interesting place. We had bills and amendments. We did big things. I love Dick Durbin so much. (laughs) The House of Representatives has sent more than 300 bills to the Senate and 98 votes on legislation in this Congress. Nancy Pelosi has her own legislation out there on prescription drugs. It would be very unlikely to pass the Senate, but Grassley's bill could probably get there if it were a focus. He just sounds incredibly pessimistic that it will get that kind of focus. That's such. That's so unfortunate. But you know what I really am here for? I'm here for senators and House members, like the article about Abigail Spanberger and Ayanna Pressley, where they're like, this is not a pleasant place to work because nothing happens. I wish they would all say that more because it says to me that it's not, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, I think it just really puts emphasis on our system is broken and we need to talk about why we sit, we keep electing new people thinking, well, it's the people up there. We need all new people. And we send new people and they're like throwing their hands up in the air after an year and saying, Nothing ha- nothing is happening. Or you have people like Dick Durbin shouting back from the other side of being like, it used to happen and it stopped. And we're hearing all these voices of different levels of experience saying something is wrong and it's not just the people that you're sending up here. The system is breaking down. And I think it's, you know, it can be disheartening, but I think the increase in those voices saying that is helpful in a certain kind of way. It's a great point. It also causes optimism for me that Senator Grassley is out there talking openly about how his colleagues seem to not care that they're going to have to be reelected at some point on something other than judicial nominations and impeachment. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, there is not a person in the United States who is unaffected by the cost of prescription drugs. Why are we not working on this issue? The country says resoundingly do something. And he's trying to do something that has appeal to very different groups of people with very different interests, and it's just not getting advanced. And I will tell you that I think, again, if I were working on a campaign against Mitch McConnell, I would be talking about where Mitch McConnell's money comes from and what interest groups might perhaps cause Mitch McConnell pause in bringing this to the floor and leaning on his colleagues to get it done. So on top of the impeachment, 
and the, uh, you know, very busy work of confirming judicial appointments and not much else, the government funding runs out on December 20th. Now, there is some reporting, some people have voices on Capitol Hill, and they are saying there's a good chance they're going to get all 12 appropriation bills passed this month. I mean, I don't want to be a pessimist, but that seems insanely unlikely to happen. But I think what's most likely to happen is, and much of the reporting is focusing on, that they could have several of the non-controversial of the 12 passed and a stopgap for everything else. But no one wants a full-year stopgap bill. So, you know, what do we think the chances are they just push this to, you know, February, March? There was a conversation for a while that it would be a full-year stopgap bill for everything. That is $100 billion of money that the federal government would not be spending if that happens. And Mm. that's why nobody wants that. Democrats don't want that. And Republicans certainly don't want it going into 2020. So I think you're right, Sarah. I imagine that there will be some kind of short-term stopgap, but that some of this will get done the right way. Let's hope. We also have some trade agreements that we need to get done. It seems In case you unlikely, thought we were done. <laughs> it seems <laughs> unlikely that we're going to get much done with China because of the aforementioned issues. But there's still conversation in the administration about what's going on with China. There is more optimism about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, which we've not talked about in a long time. There was really, I thought, insightful reporting from Axios talking about how getting this done depends on a compromise struck between Speaker Pelosi, organized labor, and the Mexican government, which sounds a little bit like a Mad Lib, right? So American (laughs) labor unions want a process, a unilateral process, where our inspectors could go into Mexican factories and ensure that Mexico is meeting the labor standards set forth in this agreement. And Mexico is saying, we are definitely not doing that. And the speaker is trying to navigate moderate members of the Democratic caucus who say, we need to get this trade agreement done. This is important. Mm -hmm. And the progressive wing of the party that are with organized labor till the end and want that provision or they're out. And so we will see what happens and on what timeline. I think in an ordinary circumstance, I would say the speaker will figure this out through a side letter or something. I feel like, again, this requires some focus that might be difficult to marshal in the current environment. On the other hand, all Speaker Pelosi does is deal with moderate members and progressive members and trying to figure out where they overlap. So she should have lots of experience. It's true. The last thing we want to talk about in terms of just getting our arms around all the things that occurred over the Thanksgiving break is 2020. Farewell, former Representative Joe Sestak and Steve Governor Steve Bullock who have dropped out of the Democratic primary. So the field is shrinking in that way. We now have Michael Bloomberg, though, formally in the process. So it, you know, two steps forward and one back, as they say. I was really excited. I saw a Bloomberg commercial because they're they're national, these, these commercials he's running um, last night while eating dinner at Rafferty's. Otherwise, I wouldn't have seen it because I don't watch TV. Um, But I was like, oh, look, a Bloomberg commercial. I I just think this approach of his, this self-funding, massive media buys is so interesting. I'm kind of surprised that Steve Bullock dropped out because it seems like there's this surge of moderate interest and he's such a good moderate candidate. But I totally understand. There's lots of interesting 
prognosticating going on. The closer we creep to Iowa, Mayor Pete has surged. People are saying, well, if he could win Iowa and Warren could win New Hampshire, Biden could win South Carolina and Bernie Sanders wins Nevada. And then that opens a path for Michael Bloomberg. Here, I love all these pieces. Y'all don't know anything It might seem like it's close. It's not. There was this interesting roundup of like what the polls were in Iowa the last several years. The winner was like never ahead at this point in the polling in Iowa. I just I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear people who think they know what's going to happen. I don't want to hear it. This is not a unique observation on my part, but I just have to say it. I think the fact that Governor Bullock couldn't gain traction when there is this interest in a moderate candidate is a process failure. And I hate that his voice wasn't heard in more debates and that he wasn't a bigger contender from the beginning because of the way this process is structured. And I think it would be a terrible thing for the Democratic Party if that path is really open for somebody who can spend $30 million on national advertising and come in on Super Tuesday and run away with this thing. Um, it's, It's a really strange phenomenon that's been set up. I've been reading these articles about how this small donor push in the Democratic Party has been a boon for credit card companies. Oh, I read that. That it has made the kind of donor acquisition cost prohibitively high for a lot of these campaigns. They have to spend more to get the $5 donor than the $5 donor ends up giving them. I mean, this has been kind of a mess. And I understand that you have to innovate And some of those innovations go well and some don't. But I hope there is already conversation about how we do this differently next time. Because to me, Governor Bullock's inability to gain any traction here and the possibility that Bloomberg's plan could be pretty effective is a is a telling result of this process's, in my view, failure. I also want to say about Bloomberg. I do not understand thinking it is a good idea to have media reporting on how the media outlet you own is not allowed to investigate you. Or anybody else. That's the angle they're pushing. Right. Because we won't do investigative reporting on Bloomberg, we will not do investigative reporting on anybody else in the primary. Okay, so if I'm a reporter there, I probably just find somewhere else to land. Right. What do I do if somebody calls me with like a really good angle? Did I call my friend at the New York Times? I mean, I just don't understand. Yes. Yeah. It's I mean, I don't know what other option they had, though. What else could they have done to make it seem like Bloomberg wouldn't Bloomberg media wouldn't be biased now that Bloomberg is a candidate? It's very tough. I think the way to navigate this, though, is to come out with a pretty hard hitting piece about him and show that you're Mm. here to be a news organization. I don't know how he expects us to view him so differently as such an important contrast to Donald Trump when he says things like, I don't want the people who I pay writing hit pieces on me. Well, okay, friend, then I don't want you in this race. You do lots of good things for the world. Please keep doing them. But you don't need to be the Mm -hmm. president because we do not need another president who thinks in those kinds of terms. Yeah. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. His overall life philosophy and life approach, it just starts to sound like, well, I'm the one who can fix it. I'm the only one who can fix it. I heard that before. I'm not interested in this time either. Similarly, I was really frustrated reading the Kamala Harris piece in the Times that everyone has been talking about because after watching the Trump presidency, why anyone would put a family member in charge of the campaign I I can't I can't understand. I can't understand. Well, the family member had a massive amount of experience. I mean, I think that's one important distinction. Well, that's terrific. And it's still a family member. And it still makes it difficult when you are running an organization of people to know how to navigate how you actually feel about what's going on when there's that kind of relationship at play. I think it's really difficult. I think running for president is such a big, huge 
undertaking, an emotional journey, that there is a real appeal to having someone there who you can trust and who can you trust more than your own family. And especially if that person has the level of experience her sister has. Now, in full disclosure, I didn't read the piece because I think those pieces are hot garbage. I love this quote from John Favreau, and I don't quote him a lot, but I do think this is a good quote. He said, to the hardworking campaign staffers who may not know this, I can't think of a single behind-the-scenes process story that has ever helped a campaign fix its problems. They're almost never worth talking for, and they rarely make anyone look good, politely decline. I think it's true. I just think those pieces, I'm not, I'm not ever really sure what the, the point is. I think that they are... There's so much shout and Freud going on there, even with the media, that I just I don't read them anymore, to be honest. You would have liked this piece, though, because you keep talking about how if you can't run a campaign, you can't run the government. And that was mm-hmm. the angle of this piece, that the campaign has struggled because she is indecisive about policy. She is indecisive mm. about campaign themes, that she has struggled to meaningfully address the, the tension with the campaign manager and the sister and a consulting firm and everybody else. And so it really kind of underscored some of the points that you've been making about how campaigns are run. Yeah, I've heard that most. I've heard a lot of that about her, about her campaign overall. I I promise you she's not the only one with some of those issues, though. Well, of course not. And here's the other thing I kept thinking as I read the piece. It is a rare lawyer who is a good manager. And she's a great Mm. lawyer. When you're a great lawyer... A lot of your focus is on the case in front of you, not yeah. the huge picture and all the what ifs. It is approached from a really adversarial mindset. That's why she's at her best when she's just contrasting herself to Donald Trump, making the case against him. I mean, a lot of her strengths, as is always the case, a lot of her strengths are her weaknesses here. And that's why I think the the fatal flaw was probably not choosing someone to run things who, who would be completely objective and neutral and clear-eyed about what's going on and perceived that way by everyone around them. I just, I, I'm sure her sister is talented, and I don't mean to be critical of something that I don't know much about, but I know enough about relationships mm-hmm. in the workplace to know that that is a bad idea. The last thing I wanted to bring up, I listened to a warning by the anonymous senior Trump administration official over Thanksgiving. The whole thing? The whole thing. I got it on Audible and powered three. We drove to Chicago and back, so I had plenty of time. Okay. (laughs) Let me just ask you before I start talking about it. What has been your reaction to reports of this book coming out? I think if this person wanted to be taken seriously about their warnings, it's very hard to do that anonymously. I don't disbelieve a lot of what I've read about the about the author's reports and stories about what happens in the White House. But I just think, you know, because it's anonymous, it can only go so far. I went into this with probably more patience than the average person for what this gentleman, I'm certain this was written by a man, was trying to accomplish. <laughs> I sort of, by personality type, fall prey to, look, the Titanic is sinking, but I have a bucket. And if I just keep shoveling that water out, I will inspire the people around me to do the same and we will fix it. And therapy has taught me that that is a very particular form of arrogance. And (laughs) that certainly came across in this book. And life experience has taught me that when... 
the entire leadership is morally bankrupt. And when all of the people with moral compasses or the majority of them have decided to acquiesce to that leadership for their own reasons, there's just not much to be done about it. And I think that's what's going on here. The book came across to me as profoundly unself-aware because so much of it gave us what is supposed to be an eyewitness account of all the things that we've read in the news since 2016. But it's not an eyewitness account in a compelling way when you don't know who it is and when the person is shielding all these details to protect you from figuring out who they are. And so there's really not much in it that's new. I mean, it was kind of a painful slog through the horror that the last couple of years have been and, and through the particular horror of piece after piece after piece about how vulgar and distracted and juvenile the president is. And again, I've read all of it before. I don't think that it's untrue. It certainly squares with the president that I see in Twitter and at rallies and in front of a television camera all the time. But it begs the question, what's the point of this exercise? Other than a person who seems to believe that he cares more about the country than anybody else does, kind of telling us, you should be more worried about this than you are. But you shouldn't impeach the president because that could get really scary. We should just vote him out of office. And Republican Party, you should find somebody to run against him who could actually win. And all of that would be preferable to what's going on now. And look, I don't necessarily disagree with some of that. A lot of it. There was a lot of the book where I thought, you know, I don't like this person as he's coming across in his writing. I would probably agree with him on a lot of things. There's a ton of praise for John McCain in the book. The person says, I I wrote this book, basically, I started writing the day that the president was being all petty about not wanting to lower flags to half staff when Senator McCain died. So there are details like that that make me think, yeah, this is probably a person I I would like and respect if I knew him in real life. But through the lens of this book, where he's kind of tracking the president's character traits through the lens of Cicero. You know, you just think, look, friend, you can't preach to us in this way without telling us who you are. And I understand the point that all we do in America 2019 is shoot the messenger. And that is true. And we need to back off from that. But this really doesn't land in any way. Because you can't test its credibility against even reports about was this person actually in the room? Just on a basic level, it can't be fact checked the way it's written. But I think the warning, just to kind of sum it up, is what we know and have talked about before. If you have a reelection of Donald Trump, we haven't seen anything in terms of the disregard for the guardrails of the presidency that will take place. And I think that's right and true. On that uplifting note, thanks for sticking with us <laughs> <laughs> through this catch up on all the news around the world and in the United States. Next up, we're going to share what's on our mind outside politics. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Well, Thanksgiving and holidays and all the things. We're deep into Advent at church, which we started early this year. The girls are doing acolyting responsibilities, which is really fun to see. Can I just tell you that apparently I was sick the Sunday that we got home from our travels and Chad took the girls to church and our 
pastor, Pastor Diana, had made a big deal about how this is a very special responsibility being an acolyte. And so no gum in your mouth or anything like that. And somehow it was a rare occasion when Ellen, my four-year-old, had gum. And my friend told me that she looked at Pastor Diana, took the gum out of her mouth and handed it to her and said, could you hold this for me? (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Well, we also are, you know, closing out the Thanksgiving holiday and entering the Christmas season. Uh, We have like approximately three million Advent calendars around the home. I really started my own adult Advent practice this year. I'm working through Tish Oxenrider's Shadow and Light. Uh, The first week is free if any of you wanted to try that out. I love it. I love the light a candle at the end of the day, read a little something, listen to a song, look at a piece of art. I love this this Advent practice that is becoming popular. I'm a big fan of being led along um, in this really important season of, of reflection and preparation. It's just a really fun year. You have a four-year-old. You know, four-year-olds are pretty fun at the Christmas season. We're really hoping that my sweet baby, four-year-old Felix, will will get the gift of of hearing this Christmas season because he has been struggling with fluid on the ears, earwax, and we are getting tubes and our adenoids removed today as this episode is releasing. So uh, if you're the praying type or the reflecting type, say a little prayer for Felix, that that he will have a quick recovery. All the moms with the tips for soothing um, sore throats from adenoid surgery or recovery from tubes, you just send those right along my way. And hopefully that will lead to an even better rest of the holiday season. I'm excited to see what it's like when Felix hears better. I just think it'll be fascinating. Any little shift in a four-year-old is tectonic. It's so pitiful, y'all. It's a constant refrain of say it louder. What what you say? Say it louder. It's so pitiful. Oh, well, yay for Felix. I also just love this time of year. I mean, I feel like that's almost a metaphor. You can hear a little better. I just feel that way at this time of year when you're reflecting Mm. on everything, thinking about what you want next year to be like. I'm really excited. Many of y'all know that I do business coaching in addition to the podcast, and I have finally sort of hit on here's what I love to do and how I do it best and what it requires of the people that I work with. And so if you're interested in learning more about that, you can send me a quick email. But the thing I really wanted to share here is I just feel so much creative space this time of year. And I feel so in touch with what I actually care about and want to accomplish. And it's nice, you know, and it leads me to do everything from kind of reorganizing my pantry to reorganizing my business. And so this is my favorite time of year. Thank you for joining us during this busy time of year for another episode of Paint Suit Politics. We'll be back in your ears tomorrow, Wednesday, for The Nuanced Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler.
Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 